We're going to continue our journey through these short verses in Genesis. Last week, the intention was to go through the three characters that are referenced after the disobedience to God had occurred in Genesis 3, verses 14 through 19. The three characters being the serpent, the woman, and the man. If you were here with us last week, you realize that we didn't get past the first character. I was encouraged um, as I was listening to a psychologist analyze Genesis. Something that he said is something that has been stated in different commentaries and by different Hebrew scholars. This is an unbeliever looking at the Bible and analyzing scripture. And he said, it amazes me to see how deep each detail in such small space can contain so much about human experience. And that, I think, is what every Bible expositor of Genesis feels. It's almost like with every verse, you can get an entire message from one verse. So today, I'm going to try to do the impossible and go through several verses. We're going to look at woman. We're going to see her before the fall, through the fall, and after the fall. So we're going to take this in three acts. We're going to land in Genesis, in Genesis 3.16 and Genesis 3.20. But before getting there, I want us to take a look at the first act. Woman before the fall. In Genesis 2, verse 18, is the first time we see woman described in this narrative. I'll jog your memory, um, you Bible scholars, from last week. We discussed about how Genesis can be partitioned into ten segments, or ten vignettes, They are, according to some scholars, partitioned by this phrase, generations. Toledoth. That's what the word is in Hebrew. This vignette that we're looking at begins in Genesis 2, verse 4. That's why our lovely Pam started in there. Where it says, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. And this picture begins in chapter 2, verse 4, and goes all the way to chapter 4, verse 26. So in this vignette, the first time we see woman is here in verse 18. There's two things I want to draw your attention to. The first is this. Then Yahweh God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable to him. The purpose, the intention for woman in God's mind for creation was to bring community. There is something innate in woman to bring richness to life. Adam is in paradise. Adam is where everything is perfect. The first time we read that something is not good is when Adam is alive. I'm sorry, when Adam is alone. It is not good for the man to be alone. We read further God's intention in fixing that which is not good. He says this of woman. I will make him a helper suitable for him. This is rich in Hebrew. That word helper can be seen as politically incorrect. Helper 
brings about the connotation of, you know, Santa's little helper, assistant, my secretary. Helper is that word, azer. I've gotten to calling my wife my azer. She's my azer. It's the same word used in that beautiful psalm, Psalm 121, verses 1 and 2, where David says, From where does my azer come from? His declaration being to God, You are my helper. In Isaiah 35, Ezekiel 12:14, we read that same word azer in a military context. Hosea 13.9 says this. Uh, This is such a beautiful passage. This is Yahweh speaking to Israel when He says, It is your ruin, O Israel, that you are against Me, against your help, your razor. Here, when God says, I will make Him a helper, He is speaking of someone that is so essential to the call of man that he will be unable to fulfill it without his azer. Woman is brought in with a purpose to bring community. Just as we read in verse 5 of Genesis 2 that man was brought to cultivate the ground. The second word, and it's not in, in English. You know, it's funny how, how different languages give off connotations to ideas that in English there are multiple words needed to encapsulate one word. God says, I will make him a helper suitable for him. It is a unique Hebrew grammatical structure that only appears once in the entire Bible. Kenegedo. It literally means, this one word literally means, like opposite him. I will make him a helper, an essential ally, who will be like opposite him, but different. The man is unable to do his God-given role without his helpmate. Notice that the man, according to the text, is not aware of his incompleteness. It is God, as love being father, that realizes man is, it is not good for man to be alone. The narrative continues in verse 19. And out of the ground, Yahweh God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky, and he brought each to the man to see what he would call it. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the sky, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So Yahweh God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. Narrative in such a small amount of time is so rich. Here we see tension building. God notices something lacking. Verse 18. It takes three verses for God to bring about the solution to that lack. Here's suspense. One could say, here is the origin of why there's drama with women. It's dramatic. Why would God say something is not good and take so much time to bring about the completion or fulfillment of that good? You know, I'm reminded of Isaiah 38:17, And just recently, this, this passage has become so precious to me. It's where we read Hezekiah, King Hezekiah, um, who was living towards the end of the Judean 
portion of the kingdom of Israel. You know King Hezekiah, he's sick. The prophet Isaiah comes and tells him, get your house in order because you're dying. Hezekiah says, no, I don't want to die yet, please. God tells Isaiah, go back, tell him I'll give him 12 more years. Isaiah gives more context to that story. In Isaiah 38, 17, we read this beautiful thing that Hezekiah says. It was for my well-being that I was wounded. Why does God bring the awareness of delay? Why does God bring pain into our life? Why does God bring loss into our life? It is to shape us. It is to make us aware of how insufficient we are without Him. We sing songs of the goodness of the Lord, and we sing truths, but it's difficult sometimes to live them, to realize that God at times, as he says in Exodus, he heals, but he also wounds. Why would you do that, Lord? It is to bring about character. It is to be shaping you and me into the image of his son. Loss will do one of two things to you. It will make you harder, tougher, and more brittle. You will get through tragedy in your life, and you will be that much tougher on the other side. Or, it will make you softer, more tender, more compassionate. God will bring you through, but who will you praise when you're on the other side? Will you say, it was good for me to be wounded because I've recognized him in my hurt? Or will you say, I did it, I gritted my teeth, started from the bottom, and now I'm here. God shows the lack in man. In verse 22, Yahweh God fashioned the rib which he had taken from the man into a woman. And he brought her to the man. God formed a man. He formed animals. He planted a garden. He fashioned a rib. That is literally... the. The word means built in Hebrew. It's na, uh, ba-na, which is translated as, in other passages, he built a woman. Women, woman, was not an afterthought for God. Woman was built, crafted specifically for a purpose. The richness of women, godly women in the church, is is something that is a blessing. I can hear some guys saying, yeah, but what about us? Don't worry, next week. Next week is for us. Notice what happens. Verse 19, 20, and 21, you see the reality of just vacancy. God makes a statement. He waits three verses, and then he finally fulfills what is needed. I love verse 23 and verse 24. Then the man said, This one finally is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman, because this one was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. What happens? Poetry. Song. Rejoicing. The man sees woman and says, Whoa, man! That one's mine? There's two things that remain today that existed in the garden. They are 
food and meals and poetry. There is something rich about these two practices. When you engage in a meal with someone, when you enjoy the beauty of that meal, it's a blessing from the Lord. We'll see next week what Ecclesiastes says the greatest thing for man to do is. In verse 9, when God builds trees, he says that he caused to grow every tree that is desirable in appearance and good for food. There is something to beauty. God does not just make things that are practical. He loves beauty. He makes beautiful things. Food and poetry. This, verse 23, this one finally is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. In Hebrew, there's a play on words here which is actually really, really crafty. The word for woman in Hebrew is isha. The word for Hebrew for man is ish. So when you read it, it's this one shall be called isha because this one was taken out of ish. Hebrew scholars have said something very interesting as well. In verse 23, you see the demonstration and structure of Hebrew poetry that will be seen throughout the entire Bible. You see chiasm here. You see parallelism here. You see void and completion here in such a small space. And I can't help but say it. What was the inspiration for it? Woman. She was crafted for community. She was crafted as an essential aid for man. She was the inspiration for poetry. Woman is not an afterthought. It is such a blessing. Notice in the structure next in verse 24 of what happens. So we've heard the man. We've heard God. Verse 24 Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Last week, we talked about what the structure looks like for Hebrew poetry, and we compared it to a movie, Titanic. When I said, you know, there are three different layers to a movie. You have the scenes that are happening. You have a narrator speaking. And then you have the director that decides this scene will come in, this scene will not come in. Thus far, verse 23 and 24, we've seen the action. We've seen what's happening to man. Verse 24, you have the narrator speaking. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This is not something that was suggestive. This is also not something that was optional. This is the origin of marriage. We see the origin of womanhood. We'll see the origin of manhood. This here is the origin of marriage. It is not socially constructed. It is not culturally defined. It is biblically predicated. There is a movement that tries to justify through grayness in Hebrew language and grayness in Greek uh, language. This idea that two loving people can be in a marriage, regardless of the sex that those people have, so long as these people love God and want to have a relationship that honors God, whatever that looks like. 
And the people can be heterosexual or they can be homosexual. But so long as they are loving God, they can be in a marriage. They'll go and they'll jump to different passages to try to justify this position and this idea. One passage that they never go to is this right here. Marriage is not constructed by culture or by popular opinion. It is predicated by God as his ideal form for a man and a woman to become one. I take comfort in preaching to you because this is not optional for those that would name Christ as their Lord. And I take comfort because in this setting, we have beautiful, precious women. My prayer for this church is that the Lord would look upon us and entrust more souls so that our elderly women can teach younger women how to love their husbands and raise their kids. Girls are not born knowing how to be good wives and good mothers. There is a need for experience and wisdom from our older women such as you. There is a need to give forth the wisdom that you have learned as you've honored God and obeyed Him. One of the truths that is needed is how do you build a marriage? You realize first and foremost that marriage is a gift from God and he has his context for it. And this is our origin. This is the end of the first act. Everything's perfect and everything's beautiful. And oh, that we would say, and that's the end, right? You could see the credits beginning to roll, but unfortunately not. Act two, the fall. We're going to look at Genesis 3, verses 1 through 6. And verses 7 through 8. Our deacon, Michael, asked, are we only going to go to verse 24 today in the public reading? And and it was yes. Because verse 25 of chapter 2 really belongs with chapter 3. We saw this last week in this contrast that the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Genesis 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which Yahweh God had made. There's another play on words we looked at last week. The play on word is in verse 25 of chapter 2. They were both naked. That word is Aram. Genesis 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field. That word is arum. So you see this play on words again. The Hebrew writers, the authors, loved to do this. Man and woman were arum. They were innocent. They were naked. They, they had as their precept what God had stated. And now you have an arum coming and going to question And he said to the woman, verse 1 of chapter 3, Indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God said, you shall not eat from it, and you shall not touch it, lest you die. Verse 4, and the serpent said to the woman, you shall not die, for God knows that in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Then the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise. So she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. 
There's something subtle happening here in this narrative in verses 1 through 3. There's a contrast that we need to do. The serpent asks the woman, Is it true that you can't eat from any tree? Notice in verse 2 how the woman responds. The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. This, this is subtle. But contrast what the woman said with verse 16 of the previous chapter. Yahweh God commanded the man saying, from any tree of the garden you may surely eat. The trees, they're yours. There's one tree, stay away from. But everything else, eat. Eat everything from the tree. Eat the leaves. Eat the bark. Discover what they're for. Look at how you can stew them. Notice how they taste. Use them. Eat from the trees. Go for it. Here, the woman says, from the fruit of the trees of the garden, we may eat. No, no, we can, we can only look at the fruit, and we can only have the fruit. There's an alteration that is woven into this text. In addition to an um, alteration, there is a prohibition that is added. Verse the, if you look at verse 3, so she says, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. And in verse 3, But from the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, God said, You shall not eat from it. You shall not touch it, lest you die. Notice what God said in verse 17 of chapter 2. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat from it. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Where does this idea that I can't even touch it come about? We see an alteration to what God originally said. We have an additional prohibition that the woman adds. What's happening here? What God had established... We see the woman beginning to alter and not take at face value. This is important for what's happening in the narrative. The serpent questions God. The woman alters what was stated. And now she's ripe for the taking. Verse 4. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. For God knows that in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Verse 6 is jam-packed, jam-packed with truths. Look at what we read. Then the woman saw that the tree was good for food. And that it was a delight to the eyes. If only she had stopped there. And that the tree was desirable to make one wise. So she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her. And he ate. If you look in chapter 2 verse 9. There's something subtle happening here. Chapter 2, verse 9, Yahweh says this, or we read of Yahweh. Yahweh God caused to grow every tree that is desirable in appearance and good for food. In Genesis 3, 6, we read those same things here. They are good for food and they are a delight to the eye. But there's something else added in the same way that there was something else added in the previous passages. What is that one thing added? Desirable to make one wise. What's happening here is a separation from God's statement. It is taking God's statement and saying, I can play with it. I can alter it. I can, I can make it fit 
into what makes sense for me. When we do that, we become vulnerable to philosophies that are not biblical, ideologies that are not God-honoring, and cultural norms that we begin to see as normal or natural. A Christian writer, a female Christian writer, I love what she said. The church is living in times where we begin to see our traditional norms fall away. Maybe that's a good thing because not all of our traditional norms are biblical. That means that we can return back to what the Bible says are the nature, the place, the archetype, and what woman and man, what marriage, what family is supposed to look like. To come to a place of just saying, this is right because this is how it's always been. It's not a good place to live. Because perhaps we live in a culture in times past when the norms were more biblically based. Based. Today, we're beginning to see the destruction brought about by critical theory, cultural Marxist, deconstructionism, postmodernism. In a good way, it's good to get rid of those cultural norms because some of them just aren't biblically based. But we take what Scripture gives forth and on that we camp. In verse 6, the third thing that is added and that the tree was desirable to make one wise. That's an interesting word in Hebrew. Desirable is the best that the translators could do. It really is from Hebrew into English. Um, a little, little nerdy thing here. Uh, the context or the grammatical structure is that this word desirable is a verb. And within the Hebrew structure, it's understood as being a nifal verb, which means that the action is passive or it's reflexive. It's not active. So Eve was not putting desire on the fruit, on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's not what the text is saying. What we see is that desire was coming upon her. She was being attracted to it. Had she kept herself grounded in God's word, had she not put additional prohibitions, which you guys all know that Pastor Anthony says, I hate legalism because that's what legalism is. It's adding to what is not in scripture. Had she not done that, she would have been able to grab onto God's very words. But because you add, you alter, you shift, what are you holding on to now? Is it God's word or is it your understanding of God's word? Desire and fell upon her. It was desirous. There's a quote that I want to read for you guys from C.S. Lewis. It's a rather long one, but I think it's, it's enlightening to us. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, said this. There is none of our impulses which the moral law may not sometimes tell us to suppress, and none which it may not sometimes tell us to encourage. It is a mistake to think that some of our impulses, say motherly love or patriotism, are good and others, like sex or the fighting instinct, are bad. All we mean is that the occasions on which the fighting instinct or the sexual desire need to be restrained are rather more frequent than those for restraining motherly love or patriotism. But there are situations in which it is the duty of a married man to encourage his sexual impulse and of a soldier to encourage the fighting instinct. 
There are also occasions on which a mother's love for her own children or a man's love for his own country have to be suppressed or they will lead to unfairness toward other people's children or countries. Strictly speaking, there are no such things as good or bad impulses. And I like that. You know that there is such a thing, as as we've stated before, there is such a thing as beauty. There is a context, according to Scripture, where lust is beautiful. A man is not only to love his wife, a man is not only to care for his wife, but a man is supposed to be lusting towards his wife. In Greek, it's the word eros, that she would know she is desired of her husband. That is why in verse 9 of chapter 2, that which is good for food and desirable in appearance, God created these features. and It was good. The question is, how do you navigate and understand when these impulses, when these desires are appropriate? What is the moral law to which you go that govern your actions? It is to be the word of God. It is as you understand what is God's precept for marriage. How is a man to act within marriage? How is a woman to act within marriage? Is my action towards my husband appropriate? Is my action towards my wife appropriate? Those questions everyone must answer. But not everyone bows their knee to God. Not everyone holds the scripture as their authority. And this is why it is so encouraging to be here teaching to you women. Because this is your authority. You desire to conform your life to the precepts of the word. Delight to the eyes, good for food, desirable. Look at how this ends. Verse 7 and 8. And the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Verse 8. Then they heard the sound of Yahweh God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of God in the midst of the trees of the garden. Rather than being like gods, rather than fully knowing, I know what is good for me and I know what is bad for me, what happens? They cover themselves, they hide themselves, and they're ashamed. There's something here very interesting in verse 8. Then they heard the sound of Yahweh walking in the garden in the cool of the day. When you read that, what do you think about? It's natural to think about, hey, the cool of the day is, you know, it was evening, it was dusk, it was a beautiful sunset, and then all of a sudden you hear God walking in the garden. In Hebrew, that word is ruach. Spirit. It is the same word used in Genesis chapter 1, that the Ruach of God was over the waters. This is not some scene of God just passively strolling in the cool of the day. This is a whirlwind. This is something is wrong. This is the same power that created Reality is now here before us. Adam and Eve know there is something wrong. Act three. The woman after the fall. You know, woman was created as man's azer, his help, his ally, to have his side. To see what he could not see. And his azer ended up being his demise. 
If there is anything that our women can take for themselves is to see how valuable you are to your husband. You are both that which will protect, will help, will guide. And if your heart is not right, if your compass is not straight, you can also lead to your husband's demise. That is how essential, according to the text, you are. Woman, after the fall. Verse 16. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain and conception. In pain, you will bear children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. We have this beautiful picture of marriage, of man's opposite equal to him, his ally. We had man not being able to carry about his divine given purpose without his azer. Here we have a description of what it looks like after the fall. I want to draw your attention to two things here in this verse. The first is, unlike we looked like last week, God does not curse the woman or curse the man. He brings judgment on the produce of these two individuals, but he does not curse the individuals. He does curse the serpent. And looking even deeper into this, which we'll look at next week, I told my wife, you ladies got off pretty easy. You know that? And she's like, excuse me? What are you talking about? According to the text, curse does not even appear within the judgment of the woman. What she produces is not cursed. Unlike man, his produce, the method of production, is cursed. What he has to go and till the ground is cursed. Why isn't the woman, what the individual woman, why is she not cursed? And why is it that what she produces is not cursed? There's a judgment, but what she produces, why isn't that cursed? Because she produces children and because she is the glue to a marriage. Take a look at this. Two things are brought upon the woman. I will greatly multiply your pain and conception. What is meant by that? In pain you will bear children. I don't need to elaborate on that. Even if you have not had children, you've heard the horror stories. Why is that not cursed? Because children are a blessing. Psalms 127, verses 1 through 5. I get teary-eyed because uh, this, this passage itself has been used by the Lord to, to correct, to instruct my heart, to lead me into greater understanding of Him. Um, culture will say that kids are a strain on you. They'll say they will keep you. They will inhibit you from being all that you can be. And scripture says the complete opposite. Psalms 127 says, unless the, unless Yahweh builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless Yahweh watches the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early, that you sit out late. O you who eat the bread of painful labors, for in this manner he gives sleep to his beloved. In prayer meetings, people love to quote this part of the passage. Lord, unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, labor in vain. Right? You've heard that in prayer meetings. And it's true. But the context to that continues on. Look at verse 3 of Psalms 127. Behold, children are an inheritance 
of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. What culture deems as a curse, what culture deems as, you know, you can also be a mom if you're a plant mom, if you're a dog mom, if you're an actual mom, you're crazy. You're taking resources from those more in need. It's not what Scripture says. Scripture says kids are a blessing. You know, we love to live in exceptions. We hear God's precepts. And the first thing we love to do is to ask, yeah, but hypothetically, what about this situation? You know, George, you're saying that children are a blessing, but one, what if I don't have a man? And I, I'm not stepping into womanhood. Or hypothetically, what if I don't want to be married? What if I don't want to be a mom? But I still want to, I don't want to be married, but I still want to be a mom. Or, what if I just don't want either? Those are good questions. But to that question, something else needs to be asked. You feel that, but under whose shadow are you trying to draft and build your femininity? Are you building your femininity on what culture says, this is what a woman looks like? Or are you building your femininity based on what scripture says? For those couples who cannot have children, Thank God that there are ways of adopting. Thank God that there are ways of taking in. But the question arises, whose shadow will you fall under? As you adopt that child, will you say, I did it, it's all me? Or will you strive to mature and nurture that child under the knowledge of God? As a woman who's like, I don't want to be married, and I don't want to be, I don't want kids. That's fine. It's okay. Scripture tells us, Jesus tells us that there are eunuchs. Some are, make themselves eunuchs. Others, for the kingdom of God, make themselves eunuchs. But the question is, as you move forward, will you also encourage God's original design? Or will you say, ah, I'm a unit for the Lord. I don't need that. Here in scripture, we see God's blessing on the household. We see God's intention on the household. We see a man and a woman stepping into parenthood for the glory of God. One other point that I want to draw from verse 16. We see that what the woman produces is not cursed. At the end of verse 16, you read, Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. What is that? Um, this is interesting. In order to understand what's going on here, you have to also understand what the original context was for Adam and Eve. They were equal partners. They were essential to each other. Opposite, but essential to each other. The woman had desire fall upon her and she was allured to the tree. Here, God says, this is your judgment. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. 
This is so interesting because that word in Hebrew for desire is teshukah. It appears only three times in the Bible. The second time that this word appears is actually in Genesis 4, 6 through 7. That passage reads, Then Yahweh said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is lying at the door and its desire is for you. But you must rule over it. It's the same phraseology that's used here. The writers, the Hebrew narrative writers are saying, hey, when you read that in Genesis 4, that's exactly what this passage is looking like. There's a conflict. There's a lack of harmony. That which she was essential. She was his azer, his rib, his side. Now, it's woman left wanting to be in that context again, in that setting again. And the reality is that God says, he will lord over you. It is woman wanting that original design. And it is sad that we see a culture of women today who have been exploited, who have been harmed, who have been hurt, and the motivation behind for some, for why that occurs, is that longing of Eden. I want a man that loves me. I want a man that wants to do life with me. I want a man that values me and sees my contribution. I want that. And for certain women, that's led to painful relationships, heartache, Marriages today are seldom reflections of God's intention. In, in, in a short time, we're going to end with some pretty touchy topics here. But the idea of submission is so hard sometimes. If we knew what the idea of marriage was, if that gripped us, We would value each other so much more. In Ephesians, men are pictured as Christ and women are pictured as the church. Think about this. Think about the weight that is on the husband. You are to love your wife as Christ loves the church. I would much rather have the woman's role that says, You are to submit and respect your husband as unto the Lord. It is that much more difficult. Genesis 4 gives a picture of what this conflict is to look like. George, you said there were three passages. Tonight, we're going to, in addition, if you guys have questions about this, Day's um, sermon, we're going to spend some time looking at Song of Songs. There's this beautiful passage I want to draw your attention to. Song of Songs, chapter 7, verse 10, we read something beautiful. In light of what marriage and woman looks like post-fall, Song of Songs, chapter 7, verse 10. Talking about marriage, talking about a relationship between a man and a woman. This is the bride's comment about her groom. She says, I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. Despite the fact that we are now in a land east of Eden, and despite the fact that there are differences of priorities and focuses, 
the longing of Eden of having harmony is still possible through God's grace. The question now is, will you take God's mandate for marriage seriously and reap the benefits that come with it? Verse 20 of Genesis chapter 3. Something beautiful happens here. The original prototype, the design, the intention is lost. The temptation has been had. The outgrowth is this fracture. And yet, there's redemption. Where's the redemption? Verse 20. After the judgment has been given, now the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. This is the first time And I tried really, really hard not to use her name prior to this, but I failed. This is the first time you read of what the woman is called, Eve. In Hebrew, there's this beautiful play on words. Eve means chava. Living, it's haya. And even though, as an azer, she was instrumental and bringing forth instrumental, not the sole cause, but instrumental in bringing the fall. Nonetheless, redemption for her is in the fact that every person here owe our descendant to her. We are descendants of Eve. She looks upon us and says that the human race started because of her. Chava and Haya. Two more passages and then we're done. Will you turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9? 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9. Speaking about how men and women are to conduct themselves in the house of the Lord. This needs to be distinguished by how a woman and a man are to conduct themselves within a marriage. But this is speaking specifically for the order of men and women in church. Paul, telling Timothy, says this, Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, with modesty and self-restraint, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly clothing, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women professing godliness. A woman must learn in quietness, in all submission. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first formed, and then Eve, And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into trespass. Verse 15. But she will be saved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctification with self-restraint. There is here, Paul forms a chiasm. Starting in verse 9 and ending in verse 15, there's a reflection going on here. Have you come across one-versers? People that hold on to one verse and they build an entire theology only on one verse and keep that one verse and say, yeah, but what about this one verse? This is why there is a need for systematic theology. It's an entire picture. Titus 2, 3 through 4 talks about older women teaching younger women. We opened up with the reality that women have a context of teaching within the church. We would be lost if there were only older women who could not pour their wisdom into younger women through biblical principles. We would also be lost if we had a church full of young women who did not have a heart to receive from older women. In Acts chapter 18, verse 26, we see this beautiful 
team, Aquila and Priscilla, teaching one of the greatest pastors of the New Testament church, Apollos. There is a place and a context for a woman to teach within the church. Contextually, she is not to be among elders. And you read that in chapter 3. Where is her context to be then, George? But she will be saved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctification with self-restraint. Realize this. Are we talking about salvation through works? So can a woman be saved by bearing kids, by the act of bearing kids? No. We have to take all of Scripture within context. The they does not refer also to the children. The children do not hold any bearing on the salvation of mothers. So what, what's going on here? It is working out of salvation. If they continue in faith and love and sanctification with self-restraint. It's a chiasm. Paul opens up in verse 9. I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, with modesty and self-restraint, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly clothing. The reality is it's a type of woman that is needed here. A virtuous woman. A woman who realizes who she was designed by God to be. To live in obedience to the word. To etch years, quality years of character that she would be someone who was praised. Proverbs 31. The last passage. 1 Peter 3, 1 through 6. And this is so beautiful. In the same way, you wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, as they observe your pure conduct with fear. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on garments, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible quality of a lowly and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being subject to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, you have become her children if you do good, not fearing any intimidation. Culture will tell you the complete opposite. Be all that you can be. Don't let anyone put a restraint on you. If you feel it, it must be true. It must be good. Never does it stop to question What is right to feel? What are the God-imposed limitations upon me? By virtue of being a man, you don't have a right to teach in church. By virtue of being a woman, you don't have a right to exhort authority over a man according to Scripture. This is not an aspect of finding worth in your roles. The focus here is finding worth in your design. A man is like an acorn. In the genetic chromosome of that acorn, you have these beautiful, lustrous redwoods. But if that acorn falls on a concrete sidewalk, it can't be everything it was designed to be. It needs the fertile, rich, real soil in order to grow and to blossom. Woman is that azer. God's precept for womanhood is to be women of character, of grace, that teach 
both in word and in conduct, so much so that ungodly husbands might be converted by the godly character of their wives. How beautiful of a role is that? As we'll see next week, with such a gift given to man, man, there's a huge weight on us men as well. Let us pray. Father, we come before you in humility and we ask for your help and your aid to guide us to be obedient to your word, to not add to your word, but also to not take away from your word, to submit all that we are before you. We are not allowed to take our race, our sex, our culturally derived identity. Before you, there is sinner or saved. Let us come before you, submit to you, and receive from you what you ask of us. To reflect your Son, to bring honor to your name, and in doing so, to be a light in this dark world. We love you, Father, in your precious name. Amen. Thank you.